the difference between law teachers and grace teachers, number one, grace teachers will be persecuted. Galatians 5, 11 through 12. Now, brothers, Paul said, if I am still preaching circumcision, which is works, which is self-effort, which is a religious system, which is something I have to do, the works of man, the requirements of man, if I'm still teaching self-effort or works, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Here's what Paul's saying there. These false teachers were very manipulative. They would say, I know you guys like Paul a lot, and Paul agrees with us. Paul really thinks you should be circumcised, or you should have, you should have to put forth some effort. And Paul says, they're 100% wrong. Because if I'm teaching what they're teaching, then why am I being persecuted? If you notice, works-oriented Bible teachers are not ever persecuted. Who are the ones who are persecuted and criticized and condemned of giving people license to sin and being light on sin and being easy on the gospel and communicating the easy believism? Those who are teaching grace. Legalistic teachers are not persecuted. It's the grace teachers who are persecuted. Paul said, if I'm teaching what they teach, then why am I being persecuted? The fact that I'm being persecuted proves that I'm not teaching what they're teaching. That's his reason of thinking here. And then he says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. The cross is highly offensive. Not to the sinner, but to the saint. To the sinner, the cross is full of hope. To the prostitute and the tax collector, they found hope in the grace of Jesus. Grace was not offensive to the prostitute and the tax collector. But who was offended by grace during Jesus' ministry? Pharisees. Who was offended by grace during Paul's ministry? The Judaizers. Who's offended by grace today? Legalists. Modern-day Pharisees, modern-day Judaizers, modern-day legalists. Now, why is the cross offensive to some people? Because when we look at the cross, it brings us to one conclusion. If there's anything that I can do to make myself right with God, to gain God's forgiveness, to stay in fellowship with God, to stay right with God, if there's any morality that I can have, if there's any religious activity that I can practice, if there's anything that I can do then I don't need Jesus. That's the conclusion Paul comes to in Galatians 2.21. He said, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness, and in that word righteousness is the word forgiveness and the word fellowship and the word peace with God, he just uses this one word to say, this is the package of forgiveness and peace with God and you're right with God. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God for being righteous before God or forgiven by God or in fellowship with God comes through the law or comes through a religious system or religious effort or anything that I do, then he he sums it up like this. Then Jesus' death was in vain. Meaningless. It's not that I need 50% of Jesus and I contribute 50%. 
Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And we're all under the penalty of death. And there's nothing that we can do. And then he does everything. We relate to God based upon everything that Christ did for us. Now that's offensive to some people. Why is it offensive? Because it exposes their self-righteousness. It exposes their arrogance. It exposes their own faith in themselves. Thinking that it's good enough to merit something with God. And now they're putting themselves equal with Jesus. Right? It's offensive. It's my works are equal to the work of Christ on the cross. My quiet time is now equal to the work of Christ. My journaling is equal to the blood of Christ. My confession of sins daily to stay in fellowship and stay forgiven is equal to the blood of Christ. My works are equal to the blood of Christ. That's an offensive message when we say your quiet time merits nothing. Your daily confession of sins merit nothing. Our journaling merits nothing. Our witnessing merits nothing. Our self-effort merits nothing. Our church attendance merits nothing. Our small group attendance merits nothing. We merit nothing in and of ourselves in righteousness and right standing with God. That's an offensive message to people who view a relationship with God based upon grace and works. They're offended by it. And then they start attacking those who teach, like Paul did. So the the cross is very offensive to the self-righteous. As for those who are agitating you, causing you all this trouble, he says, I wish they would proceed to emasculate themselves. We can see in that statement, Paul was not very happy with what was going on in Galatia. He was very, very frustrated that these legalistic teachers were coming in here and ripping away the gospel of grace. Grace teachers will be persecuted. I'll just read through these real quick. A grace teacher clearly teaches that salvation and transformation is by grace through faith in Jesus apart from works. The cross is where all of our sins were paid for by Jesus and full forgiveness is received through faith in Jesus. The cross is where all of our unrighteousness was placed upon Jesus and by faith in Jesus we receive his righteousness. Preaching circumcision is focused on meeting external requirements for salvation or transformation. Grace teachers will be accused of being light on sin and giving people a license to sin. Grace teachers will be slandered because they teach that salvation and transformation is by grace, which is all that God did for us through Christ on the cross and his spirit within us, where we call God Abba Father. The finished work of Christ, eternal forgiveness, righteousness, eternal fellowship, which comes by grace through faith, is offensive to some spiritual leaders and believers because they take pride in their good works, their religious works, their spiritual disciplines, such as, for example, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Grace teachers will be persecuted. Number two, law teachers seek to be celebrated. Paul says in Galatians 6, 11 through 12, Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They only do this to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean by this? So these Judaizers had come to Galatia from Jerusalem. The more people who were circumcised in Galatia and in circumcision was committing themselves to obeying the law, they would count all the circumcisions. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Boy, we've, we've circumcised 45 Gentiles. 
And these 45 Gentiles are now committed to leading their families to obeying the law of Moses. Go back to Jerusalem and tell the leaders, we've circumcised 45 believers in Galatia. They so wanted their statistics to be wonderful and great so they could celebrate how many people were now in their religious system. And they would say, hey, in Jerusalem, good job, way to go. Now, there's nothing wrong with statistics. Back when I was pastoring, we kept statistics. How many people were at church? How many people were in children's ministry? How many people were in small groups? How many people were in men's ministry? Those are all important. But we understood that simply getting people into systems does not produce spiritual growth. No more than getting a lot of people into the restaurant produces health. You can get 1,000 people into a restaurant, but what they eat, they may consume it, and it can make them extremely unhealthy. We want to make sure that we get a lot of people in the restaurant, but we want to serve them the right food and the correct food. So it's not getting people into the restaurant that makes a person healthy. It's making sure that we have quality food that we present within the restaurant that produces healthiness. And Jesus said about the new covenant, he said, eat and drink of the new covenant. The meal that we're to take is the meal of the new covenant where God's not counting your sins against you where you're not under any law or any religious system. We're eating of what Christ did for us on the cross. We're drinking in what Christ did for us on the cross. As we drink in the juice here when we take of the new covenant, we're drinking in and we're believing, I am forgiven. We're drinking in, I am righteous. As we eat of the bread, it's Christ is not counting my sins against me because all my sins were counted upon Christ. That's, that's the new covenant When I eat of the bread, I'm saying, oh, God, you're not counting my sins against me. And we drink of the juice. It's, oh, all my sins were counted against Christ. And now I'm righteous before God. I'm celebrating what Christ has done for me on the cross. That's the new covenant. We're celebrating the finality of the cross, the finished work. And then the bread represents the body of Christ that was one broken for us, for our sins completely. We're celebrating that, that we're forgiven, we're righteous. And then, remember, Christ bodily rose from the dead, right? And then he ascended into heaven. And the Bible says, Paul says, he talks about Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the final part of the Lord's Supper as we celebrate is we ingest the bread. We ingest The Jews, which means the work of Christ is now in me. The person of Christ is now in me. Christ in me. I am forgiven. Forgiveness is in me. I'm forgiven. Righteousness is me. I'm righteous. We've ingested these truths. And now it's not about me being a fully devoted follower of Christ. It's about me understanding fully that Christ was devoted to me at the cross. And now he fully lives in me because he rose from the dead. That's the new covenant. So they were wanting to make these statistics. I think statistics are important, but statistics are not a good measurement of spiritual health of a human being or of a church. Sometimes people say, hey, this church is really healthy because it's small. And this church is not healthy because it's large. And other people say, well, this church is healthy because it's large and your church is unhealthy because it's small. And they're basing spiritual health on statistics not upon spiritual truth. They're both doing the same thing. 
Spiritual truth is what produces spiritual growth. Spiritual truth is what produces spiritual health. They only do this to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. Some pastors and teachers get the gospel. They understand it completely. But they refuse to teach it. Because if they teach it, they will lose their standing in their denomination. They will lose their job at their church. They will lose their reputation. That's what was going on there. Some of these people understood the gospel. But they cared more about their reputation among the leaders in Jerusalem. That's what happened to Peter. Peter understood the gospel. He understood the complete forgiveness and complete righteousness. He had an experience in Acts chapter 10. He understood that they weren't under law but under grace. Peter got that. But Peter avoided being persecuted for that because he knew if he stood up to these Judaizers in in Galatia that he would be persecuted, talked about, he would be criticized, he would be condemned. And so what did Peter do when he was in Antioch? I think I may have said Galatians, when he was in Antioch. Is he went back from grace because somebody cut into his spiritual race and he went back to the law and Paul shows up. And that's where we get Galatians chapter 2 verses 14 through 21. And Paul confronts Peter because Peter was seeking to avoid being persecuted because of the cross because he wanted to be praised by the religious leaders from Jerusalem. And when a pastor desires to be praised by his denominational leaders, then he's not going to communicate the gospel. And I think I've told you all about two different pastors that I had conversations with in the denomination within his area. And he came to visit our church. And he told me, Brad, you're exactly right on what you teach. But if I go back to my church and I teach what you're teaching, I won't have a job anymore. The deacons will kick me out. I can't go back and teach this, but I want to encourage you to keep teaching it because what you're teaching is right. And I was just teaching out of Romans without mixing things together and trying to help people understand. I had another person who was trying to avoid being persecuted for the cross. When he told me, he said, Brad, what you're teaching is right. Same thing. We went out to lunch one day. He said, what you're teaching is right. But I can't risk teaching what you're teaching because I'll be accused of giving people a license to sin. I'll be accused of being against the law. And I can't risk that accusation. These are just two people, and there's probably thousands of these pastors who get it, who see it, who understand it. Okay, law teachers seek to grow people spiritually through a system. If we can get them in small groups, they will grow. No. It's like saying if you, can get them, if you can get them to drink, they will be hydrated. What depends upon what they drink? If we get them to eat, they will be healthy. What depends upon what they eat? If you can get them in a small group, they will grow. No, no, no. Small groups don't produce spiritual health. Spiritual truth produces spiritual health. So we've got to make sure in every small group that we have that we have spiritual truth that's based upon the new covenant, that's based upon the gospel of grace and the good news of everything Jesus did for us on the cross. That's the content. So it's not a system that produces growth, not a discipleship system. It's spiritual truth. Law teachers seek to impress others by the number of people involved in their system. 
Some law teachers, even though they understand grace, avoid teaching grace because they do not want to be accused of two things, giving people a license to sin and being against the law. Other law teachers, though they understand grace, avoid, avoid teaching grace because they crave the acceptance and fear the rejection of others. Peter is an example of, of understanding grace but teaching law so that he would not be rejected by the leaders from Jerusalem. See Galatians 2:11 through 21. Law teachers boast about the works of the flesh. For the circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. Yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Circumcision was the front door into the law of Moses. When a person was circumcised, what they were saying was, we're going to obey the law of Moses and we're going to lead our family to obey the law of Moses. It was the front door. And Paul said, these people who are trying to get you circumcised so that you lead your family under the law of Moses and you mix Moses and Jesus together, which Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that that's committing spiritual adultery on God. When we take the law and we join it with Jesus, we're now committing spiritual adultery on God. Romans chapter 7, the first, first part of that. These people who are trying to get people to obey the law, Paul said they can't even obey the law. So why are you trying to get people to obey the very law that you can't obey? Paul uses a lot of logic. He says the reason they do this is they want to boast in your flesh. Statistics. They want to boast back in Jerusalem about how many people have been circumcised in Galatia. So that the leaders in Jerusalem would say, oh, they're doing such a great job because they've got now, they're up to 60 people that are circumcised. Boy, that church is really flourishing in Galatia. No, it's not. It's going down. Statistics are going up. Spiritual growth is going down. And Paul writes him a letter. Say, hey, these people love to boast in their statistics, but they're missing out on spiritual truth. Spiritual truth grows people. Spiritual truth grows churches. Law teachers boast about works of the flesh. Law teachers love to boast about the amount of people in their spiritual growth system. Hey, how many people are in small groups? One church will say it. How many people did you baptize this year? How many people are now having their quiet times? How many people are praying daily? How many people are confessing their sins? It's all a religious system. Rather than asking this question, how many people understand what Christ did for them at the cross? How many people understand that they're forgiven and they're righteous and they're in fellowship with God and Christ indwells them? And it's not about you being a fully devoted follower of Christ, but it's about Jesus being fully devoted to you at the cross and through his resurrection and his ascension now lives in you. How many people understand that? That's the questions we need to be asking. Where are people in their understanding of the gospel? Number four, grace teachers boast about the work of Christ. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 6, 14 through 15. But as for me, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's talking about the, the wide world of religion here. Remember back ABC back in the day, the wide, wide world of sports? Saturdays, you used to love the wide and the agony of defeat. I used to love that with the skier coming down. and The wide, wide world of sports. Paul's talking here about the wide, wide world of religion in context. He says, I've been crucified to the world of religion. I've been crucified to bragging about circumcision and spiritual disciplines and self-effort and what you're doing to merit something with God. He said, I've died to the world of 
religion. It's all about Christ. He says it's all about the cross. So Paul always boasted in the cross. And that's what changes lives. We boast in that Jesus died for all of our sins. And now we can boast in the fact that because of Christ, I'm forgiven forever, forever. And I'm in fellowship and I'm boasting not that I'm maintaining fellowship or I'm maintaining righteousness or I'm maintaining forgiveness. It's Christ did it all for me at the cross. He did it. When you and I say I'm fully forgiven forever, you know who we're bragging on? Jesus. When you and I say, hey, you know what? I'm in fellowship with God because of what Christ did for me for my sins and not on my ability to confess sins daily. I'm bragging on Jesus. When we say we're righteous before God and having nothing to do with religious activity and morality, we're bragging on Jesus. Most discipleship systems that exist today are about bragging on self. Did you have your quiet time? Are you journaling? Are you confessing? Are you, are you doing all these things? So I'm now bragging on me or I'm burdened by my inability to do these things. Paul says, he's been crucified to this world of religion. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Self-effort means nothing with God. Religious effort means nothing with God. Spiritual disciplines mean nothing to God. But people will communicate that spiritual disciplines mean everything to God. No, they don't. They mean nothing to God. The cross means everything to God. Now, if somebody wants to practice spiritual distance, they're more than welcome to do so. But their relationship with God and their standing before God has zero to do with spiritual disciplines. And has everything to do with spiritual truth. He says what counts is a new creation. Now, we go back to one of the mentions of Paul where he talks about a new creation. is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Most Christians know that verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Paul puts an exclamation point. Most believers know that verse. Most believers don't know the context of that verse. They know the verse. They've memorized it. And they think they know the meaning to it. But they don't know the meaning of it because they've been taught that the meaning of it is this. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old life that he used to live... Drinking, smoking, partying, running around, all the immoral lifestyle. That old life he used to live is now gone. And this new life of morality and living right has come. Only problem with that interpretation, it's not the context of the verse. Paul's used the word old and new several times leading up to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul said, I'm a minister of a new covenant. And it's the covenant that brings righteousness and the covenant that brings forgiveness. And it's the covenant that results in Christ living in us. It's the covenant of the Spirit. It's the covenant that the Spirit of Christ teaches to people, the new covenant. And he talks about that the old covenant is a ministry of death. And specifically, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. It's the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, plus love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love others as you love yourself. Those are commandments that bring condemnation and commandments that bring death. And Paul elaborates on that in 2 Corinthians 3. But he teaches in that that anybody who comes to faith in Christ, 
doesn't relate to God by the old covenant of the law of Moses, but relates to God by the new covenant of the grace of Jesus. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 4.15, all this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may result in thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. It's the grace of God coming through the blood of Christ. So when he gets to 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Holy Spirit's assuming that the person has read the verses before it and the verses after it before ever trying to find out what it means. And so the person who is, and the Bible teacher who's teaching this verse, rather than ripping it out of context and making it a memory verse, is now putting it in context and teaching the meaning of it. And the meaning of it is this in context. If anybody is in Christ, in context, is turned away from the law of Moses, turned away from religious performance, turned away from trying and self-effort to be right with God, specifically there the law of Moses, the old covenant, I'm turning away from self-effort. I'm turning away from works. I'm turning away from Moses. I'm turning away from the law that's contained in Exodus 19 through Deuteronomy. I'm not going to relate to God by the law anymore. I'm turning away from the law and I'm turning to the love of Christ at the cross. Turning away from the law of Moses, turning to the love of Christ at the cross. And I'm going to begin relating to God based upon what Christ did for me and not what I do for God. And he says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, what's the new creation? I'm forgiven forever for all sins. I'm righteous because of Christ. I'm in fellowship with God. The Spirit of Christ indwells me. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 talks about where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we have to ask the question, freedom from what? He's talking about freedom from the law, freedom from works, freedom from self-effort, freedom from trying to be right with God. That's the freedom. So he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, which is where? In our hearts. There is freedom in the context from what? The law of Moses. See, the person who has the Spirit of Christ in them doesn't need the law of Moses. I don't need the law. If the person of Christ lives in me, Paul saying, you don't need the law. That's the spirit-filled life that we'll talk about next week. That's how he concludes his whole teaching. So, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Forgiven, righteous. God's not counting my sins against me. Spirit of Christ lives in me. The old covenant of the law of Moses, which brings condemnation and death, is gone. And he's saying right there, the Ten Commandments are gone in context. And the new covenant has come. Exclamation point. That you and I now relate to God. Not on in, based upon any law. But relate to God based upon the love of Christ at the cross. And Paul was excited about that. And he shared that with people. And as that message of grace hit people. 2 Corinthians 4.15. Paul said all this is for your benefit. So that the, the grace of God that's reaching more and more people may result in thanksgiving overflowing to the glory of God. And as people begin to understand the new covenant of grace, the fullness of forgiveness, their righteousness, their fellowship with God, their response was, God, thank you so much. Thank you that I'm forgiven. Thank you that I'm righteous. Thank you that I'm in fellowship with you. Thank you for what you've done for me at the cross. And we cease asking God to do what he already's done, what he has already done. And we live in appreciation 
for what he's done at the cross rather than keeping on asking him for what he's already done. That's that verse in context. And that's what he talks about here. What counts as a new creation? Faith in Christ, not the old, crea- not the old person of the law of Moses. Grace teachers boast only in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because they know spiritual growth comes through understanding the spiritual truths of grace, not through a spiritual growth system. Paul died to the religious world of works, knowing that what counts is not external works, but the internal transformation by the Spirit of Christ inside a person. Eternal works are nothing, or external works are nothing when it comes to forgiveness from God and righteousness before God. The cross of Jesus is everything. The new creation is the person who has received by faith God's forgiveness and righteousness freely provided in Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus now indwells this person, freeing him from the old covenant of law. The Spirit writes upon his heart the truths of the new covenant. He is reconciled to God in a love relationship. He does not relate to God by the law, but by grace. See 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6, 2. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The, the old covenant of law has passed away, and behold, the new covenant of grace has come. So real quickly, what does grace produce in the lives of people? Grace grows people spiritually. Drop down to that first bullet. It comes out of Colossians 1, 3 through 8. Grace produces faith. Grace produces hope. And grace produces love. Paul says this to the, to the Colossians. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. So we see faith and we see love. The faith and love proceeding from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. So now we see faith in Christ, which produces hope, which produces love. Which you've already heard about in the word of truth. Circle the phrase word of truth right there. So they heard the word of truth. And when they heard the word of truth, they placed their faith in the word of truth. And when they placed their faith in the word of truth, it produced hope and it produced love. Now he's defining what the word of truth is that they heard and that they placed their faith in that produced faith and that produced hope and love. The word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The word of truth is the gospel, right? The word of truth is the gospel. And the word of truth came to them, the gospel... And when they heard the gospel, they placed their faith in the gospel, which produced hope and love. And then Paul talks about in Colossians 1.8, your love in the spirit. So the spirit of Christ in them began producing in them love, began producing in them hope. The spirit of Christ took the spiritual truths of the gospel and began producing hope and producing love. There's no self-effort here for them. There's no works here for them. There's no disciplines to follow here for them. It's they heard the word of truth. And they begin to grow. No disciplines involved. So grace produces faith, hope, and love, and grace produces fruit. Colossians 1.6, Paul continues, All over the world, this gospel that you heard, this gospel that you believed in, this word of truth that produced hope and produced love, is also bearing fruit. So now that we see that the gospel that came to them, the word of truth, produced hope when they believed it, produced hope, produced faith, produced love, and produced fruit. 
They have yet to, to practice one spiritual discipline. Something's happening on the inside of them when they begin hearing the truth of the gospel that did not require them to practice one single spiritual discipline. And you know what is just communicated all over the churches today? Spiritual discipline, spiritual discipline, spiritual disciplines. If you want to grow, spiritual discipline, spiritual discipline. I fell prey to that. Okay, if I want to grow, then I have to practice spiritual disciplines Mm -hmm. until finally somebody shared with me the word of truth, the gospel. And I was like, everything I've been trying to do through spiritual disciplines in three hours did for me that spiritual disciplines didn't do for me in, in 13, 14, 15, 20 years. It was... The gospel totally changed me. And we see this in Colossians. Grace produces fruit. Grace produces growth. All over the world, this gospel that you heard and that you believed is bearing fruit. It's changing you from the inside out. And it's growing. So now we see these people have yet to practice one spiritual discipline. And something's happening on the inside of them when they heard the gospel, the word of truth. They believed it, number one, and when they believed the gospel, it produced faith, it produced hope, it produced fruit, and it produced growth. And they have done nothing but open their ears to listen and believe it. No works, no practicing, no anything. Grace produces expansion. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It was happening all over the Gentile world. It, it, was, it was such a powerful gospel that not only was it changing the lives of people individually, but it was changing lives of people all over the Roman world. That the greatest power on the earth at this time wasn't the Roman government. The greatest power on earth on this time was the cross of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. That's the greatest power. And the power, Paul says in Philippians, even penetrated Caesar's household. That the greatest place on earth caesar's household was changing the lives of the very people who worked for caesar and nobody was teaching spiritual disciplines there wasn't any books to read on spiritual disciplines it was just let me tell you about the grace of god freely given you in jesus and they heard it and they believed it and caesar's household began to be changed because of the power of the gospel. Paul writes about that in uh, Philippians. Now notice this. Grace produces immediately. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you. Now he's going to define what is the gospel and what is the word of truth. Since the day you heard it, the word of gospel, the word, the word of truth, the gospel, and truly understood the grace of God. Some versions said, and understood the grace of God and all of its truth. Notice how quickly life change began to happen for these people. The day you not only heard it, but understood it. That's my passion, is I want people who've been saved by grace to understand the grace that saved them. And when people who've been saved by grace not only hear the word grace, because we hear the word grace a lot within the body of Christ, and we can define grace as 
God's riches at Christ's expense, the acronym. We can define grace as the unmerited favor of God. We can sing amazing grace. We can define grace as, uh, well, again, as the unmerited favor of God. But when we ask people, what's the favor that's unmerited? They don't know. God's riches at Christ's expense, acronym, beautiful acronym. But what's the riches that came to you at Christ's expense? Well, I don't know. And why is grace so amazing? Well, I don't know. We, we, we begin to see the riches of grace in the book of Ephesians, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, because Jesus taught Paul the message of grace. And Paul began to teach it to the Gentiles all over the Roman Empire, and lives begin to change. And so it's not only hearing the word grace, but it's, it's, it's understanding what that word means within the context of Scripture. And you notice that when not only somebody hears it, but they understand it, that's when transformation comes. You know how many people are practicing spiritual disciplines who don't understand grace? The majority of them. Because we've convinced people that the key to spiritual truth, the key to spiritual growth is spiritual disciplines. And we see in Colossians that the key to spiritual growth has nothing to do with spiritual disciplines, but has everything to do with the spiritual truth of the gospel of grace. That's why, well, Brad, you don't tell people to read the Bible? No. You don't tell people to pray? No. You don't tell people they ought to do this? No. I want to tell people what Jesus did for them on the cross. I want people to understand what Christ did for them. I want people to experience Christ in you and what Christ did for you. Because people are already reading their Bibles. People are already praying. People are already attending. They're already doing those things with no concept of what Jesus really did for them in completeness. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1, 26, 27, he says, with all the effort and with all the energy I have, I want to present to you in fullness the word of, the word of Christ, all that Christ did for you. And so he labored with all the energy in him to help people understand what Christ did for them. Now, how did this group in Colossia Understand the gospel of grace. You learned it, he said, from Epaphras, our fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. We don't know anything about Epaphras. Oh, that's okay. We, know, we don't know anything about Epaphras, right? Epaphras is just an obscure individual in Scripture. But he completely understood the gospel of grace. Here's what it means. We're a bunch of Epaphrases. God can use anybody to communicate the gospel of grace. They didn't learn it from Paul. They learned it from Epaphras. And we find out in Colossians at the end, Paul says, who is one of you? Who's one of you? You learned it from somebody who's a a citizen of Colossia. So God can use you to communicate the gospel. It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who communicates. It, it's, that, it's that it's communicated. Now, when we communicate it, will you be rejected? Maybe. Will you be persecuted? Possibly. Will people accuse you of being light on sin and against sin and all the, uh, that you don't care about morality and 
Yeah, you're going to be accused of all those things. But you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what they think. Because Paul said, I don't care if I'm judged by you or any human court. It's the Lord who judges me. That is a great place of freedom. Now you're free to teach the gospel. And watch the Holy Spirit transform the hearts of people as the gospel is communicated. For people to grow spiritually, we learn in these verses, they must hear about grace fully. They must understand grace clearly. For people to hear about and understand grace, they need someone to take grace to them, an Epaphras, and someone to teach grace to them. Grace strengthens people internally. Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians with this verse in Galatians 6.18. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Interesting. The law cannot be with somebody's spirit. The law is external. Works are external. Expectations are external. The list is external. All the things you have to do are all external. But the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he did for us on the cross is internal. We saw it happen with the Colossians. It's internal. It's with your spirit. Grace is deep down where the shame is. Grace is deep down where the self-condemnation is. Grace is deep down where the fear is and the doubt is and the spiritual anxiety is. Spiritual anxiety is I'm not doing enough. So God, I promise I'm going to do better. Spiritual anxiety is am I out of fellowship? I don't know. I need to confess some more sins. Did I miss a sin? Spiritual anxiety. Spiritual anxiety is on the inside. That's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your soul. He's talking about an internal rest. Where the people were finally breaking free from the external requirements of the Pharisees in context. And they were experienced directly from Jesus, his grace. And their souls were finding rest. Spiritual peace was beginning to replace spiritual anxiety. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Grace is everything God has done for us in Jesus to forgive our sins and make us righteous. The law is external. It stands on the outside of a person and condemns any kind of system. Grace is internal. It is inside a person and changes a person from the inside out. Um, Do not, Paul said, or the writer of Hebrews, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. And he keeps it really simple. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods of no value to those devoted to them. People say you need to devote, back during this day, you need to be devoted to the law of Moses. You need to be devoted to eating this food and we've just switched that today to you need to be devoted to the disciplines. Back then, it was you need to be devoted to the diets. And Paul is saying, no, you understand that Jesus was devoted to you at the cross. And you will find strength for your heart, internal, right? Because grace strengthens the heart. But the legalist will tell you that grace doesn't strengthen the heart. Grace weakens the heart. That's what people say. Grace will weaken the heart and it'll cause people to sin more. Well, that's so unbiblical. Because we see in Scripture that grace strengthens the heart and grace teaches us to say no to sin and law increases sin. So they've got it backwards. So grace is a strange teaching to many believers because they've not been clearly taught the fullness of the gospel of grace. 
The law does not strengthen the heart, only grace does. And the gospel of grace has great value in the lives of people. And about the value of the gospel of grace, Paul says, now we have this treasure, and he's talking about the new covenant in context, in jars of clay, the human body, to show that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. What is God's power? God's power is the new covenant. God's power is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for those who practice spiritual disciplines. No, for those who believe. If you and I want to see the power of God in our lives, believe the gospel. It's, it's not about anything else but believing the gospel. And we saw in Colossia, when they believed the gospel, faith, hope, fruit, life change, growth, expansion, the day they heard it and believed it. So uh, I hope this is encouraging to you and helpful. Take everything that I say to Scripture. Read it all in context. Like I say, I could be wrong. I hope that I'm not wrong. But I'm always open to people to come to me and say, Hey, Brad, I went and I checked it out in context. I think you may have misunderstood this. I want that conversation because I don't want to miscommunicate Scripture in any kind of way to anybody. So I I welcome that kind of scrutiny uh, from the body of Christ. So, you know, you go home and, and, and you check it out. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, Click the Donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.